All right, folks, it is time for us to get started. Our uh, live stream has started. Welcome to those who are joining us on one of our streaming platforms or maybe listening to this uh, or watching this later in the week on our podcast. Uh, welcome. I'm glad that you are uh, here with us. I want to... Um, I'm going to open us in prayer here in a little while, but I want to provide an update for you. A couple of you have already asked uh, how our team in Rwanda is doing. They uh, are on an airplane right now. Uh, They'll be on an airplane for a long time. Uh, It takes forever to get there and to get back, but they uh, were able to leave. And so flying to Europe in the morning, they'll fly home and um, uh, tomorrow. So they'll be home tomorrow night. Um, but they had an incredible week. I've been able to get updates from the ladies almost every day or from Josiah, one of the two, um, almost every day since they have been there. And all of the trainings went really well, really well attended. Uh, they, we were really excited. Um, they've battled in some ways even more than we have restrictions uh, for a long time over you know, COVID and, and crowd size restrictions and, and all manner of stuff. And so we really weren't sure um, with this team, what some of these, what some of the restrictions were going to be until right before, but it looks like just some really great stuff happened. I, I do want to share something we weren't necessarily anticipating because we were sending this group of ladies primarily to do discipling work among ladies. Ladies is part of Great Joy, our church plant there, but also ladies um, in some other churches through through some partnering work. On Monday, they went out to. If you'll remember, let's just kind of to last year on one of our teams last year, I was actually a part of the team last year that got delayed. We had some flight issues and missed two days in country. Um, well, one of the, we had to cancel one of the trainings that we were supposed to do in a, um, in a church that was a pretty good ways out of the, out of the main city. And so we've never had a team be able to go and work in that place since then, because the, the other teams that we've sent since then have not, have not gone to that place. Uh, But this team did, and they went on Monday, and um, this is not, I kind of interacted with Josiah about it a little bit, because this is not completely out of the ordinary, but it was still a pretty extraordinary thing. So they do their training on Monday, and hopefully maybe at the members meeting on Sunday or uh, within a week or two, we'll get to hear more kind of firsthand from these ladies. But through that disciple-making day, and that's what it was, they were teaching through the book of Ruth. Um, obviously in the book of Ruth is this incredible picture of the gospel and nine of the ladies that were came to that training for the first time in their life, believe the gospel unto salvation. Um, yeah. So they, I asked Josiah, Josiah texted me that and I said, like, were you expecting that? You know I mean? He, he, he does a lot of these trainings in a lot of places there in East Africa and He'll, he'll hear from, you know, and he'll text me and he'll say, hey, somebody at the training today got saved or two people at the training today got, got saved. And so it's not like it's all that out of the ordinary because the, the many of the places that, that, are, that call themselves Christians in that part of the world preach a gospel that's very different than, than the one we're going to be talking about tonight, um, very different than the one that we understand uh, is the gospel of scripture and um, so it, that's pretty common, but nine is the most they've ever seen in, in one of those places. And so uh, I can tell you this, the, the team that we sent, they are coming back fired up um, and we want to we wanna pray for their safe return, obviously, but, but more than that even, we, we just want to pray that God would continue to, to work um, through what they did and, and that God will continue to do the work there. Uh, with Josiah and Stephanie as they live there and our partners that work alongside of them in great joy as they disciple these new people um, and and just in, incredible things that we got to see. So that, that's they'll be able to share more, uh, whether they do that uh, on Sunday night or they do that uh, as th- through some other means the next couple of weeks. We'll give them an opportunity to tell you everything that went on. Um, but I, I wanted to be able to share that with you, that that happened just a couple of days ago. That was on Monday. Um, and, and now they're, now they're on their way home. So we want to pray, uh, for them as, uh, they come home and then we want to pray for our time, uh, together as well. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord together. Father, I thank you that we get to celebrate, uh, alongside of our partners in Africa and the people from our church who are just, just spent a week there, um, that they were able to be a part of, uh, nine people coming to new life in Jesus uh, through belief of the gospel. 
this week. Thank you, God, uh, for doing things that we don't even expect that are beyond what we could ask or imagine. And um, while we knew we were sending these ladies there to, to disciple believers, um, little did we know and little did those ladies know that the day they were showing up to that uh, training was going to be the day that they encountered the truth of the gospel uh, and, and, and a Holy Spirit that regenerated their hearts. So God, we, we thank you for how you orchestrate those things. Uh, we thank you for the dozens and dozens of women connected to multiple churches uh, in Rwanda who, who, are, um, who know more about what they believe, know more about how they can follow and serve you uh, as uh, their redeemer uh, because ladies from our church were faithful to go work with uh, the old family in, uh, in, in Rwanda this last week. God, would you continue to call up more people from our church? Uh, to go with the gospel to our partners uh, and to work uh, in, in, uh, in places where, you're, where we're already working as a church. You've led us to work, but maybe even, God, that you would call people from our church to go to places that we're not working and, and that we would see you uh, do more things uh, through the ministry of this local body, we pray. God, we pray for our time tonight as we continue to talk about the gospel and continue to talk about uh, grace and faith and why uh, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone um, matters and why that matters to us as, um, as we think about our own faith and we think about how we came to faith, but also how we think about the gospel that we do proclaim to people through our lives and through our words. Um, may we understand this, this uh, doctrine better and may it drive us then to uh, be uh, more clear uh, and more passionate about being clear with the gospel with our uh, lost friends, uh, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So uh, where, where, where we're picking up today is really the, in the last two weeks as we've considered first the doctrine of, or two weeks ago, we considered the doctrine of grace alone, and last week considered the doctrine of faith alone. Uh, what I'm wanting to do tonight is bring those two doctrines kind of into real life. Now, we are going to talk about some doctrinal things. I did not get to cover everything that I wanted to cover last week. And so some of it, I brought it into the lesson today. So we're going to bounce back and forth between some practical questions. Um, I think all of the questions I'm going to try to answer tonight are practical, but I'm going to have to do so in, in a little more doctrinal sense. So uh, when we've done this uh, with the, the previous solo that we, we looked at Scripture alone first, when we got to this part, I talked more about some things in the Reformation, some of the historical content, um, kind of why it mattered then. I'm going to be really brief with that tonight and just say, because something's got to go, right? I've only got, um, Jay and I were working on the equip schedule today, um, and I, I've only got three Wednesday nights left after tonight. I've only got three Wednesday nights left in this, and then we're moving on to something else. And so I'm having to condense. The good thing is in the Equip Center, we're selling books that do a great job, or we have books out there for suggested donation, not, not for sale, um, that, uh, uh, that do a great job going in depth into what these doctrines are, why these doctrines mattered 500 years ago, and why they still matter today. So I would encourage you, if you've not picked up the ones on grace and faith, you can pick those up on the, in the Equip Center on your way out. And just don't feel like you got to rush through them. Take your time. Read those things. They're great resources. Um, don't feel like you have to digest it all quickly. Um, but go through it at your pace, and I promise you that it's going to be really helpful. I do think the history is helpful, and so I'm going to start there just really briefly as, as we kind of get into the subject today of, of why those two. So th taking those two doctrines, that grace, um, not merit, so not because of something within you, but because of the grace of God alone um, and because of faith, uh, not works, that this is what God uses to save sinners. And we, so we explored that for the last two weeks. And then this week, really just trying to ask the question, okay, why, why does that still matter? Uh, why, why was that an important, why were those important stamps in the Reformation? Why does that matter today? How does that help drive us in who we are uh, as gospel-believing Christians in a gospel-centered church uh, today? So let me just briefly look back in the past and say, I want to take us back to uh, the 1500s 
Martin Luther um, kind of sparks the Protestant Reformation by asking some questions all centered around the, the idea. If you go all the way back, go back six sessions ago when I was talking about um, the, the history of this, it, it, all began, it all traces back to the idea of justification. What is it that justifies us? What is it that makes us right with God? That's what justification is. It's, it is a positional, um, a positional word. It is we are either right with God or we are not. And ju- our justification is uh, that principle of we are positionally right with God. It's really a legal term in the original language. And Luther really asked some questions about justification. And over the course of a few decades, there was a lot of debate. There was excommunication. There was threats of life. Some even lost their life. Ultimately leading the Catholic Church of the day into a a Catholic council called the the Council of Trent. This was Council of Trent and uh, was the... um, uh, was the historical council where the Catholic Church addressed the, um, the Protestant Reformation. Fortunately, I think, from a Protestant standpoint, the Protestant Reformation had raged for a few decades by that point. So by the time we get to the Council of Trent, it's well-established. There are well-established churches now that are believing the gospel according to Scripture, that salvation is that it's taught in scripture that it's by grace through faith in Jesus alone for the glory of God alone, these five solas that we're uh, walking through as a part of this, uh, this winter equipped session uh, together. But I, I want to just kind of delve quickly into um, one aspect of justification that I think is going to help us understand why this still matters today, why the question of salvation by grace through faith alone, why that still matters today. And that is how justification is applied to our lives. That is justification something that has happened to you in a, in a moment, or is justification something that is happening to you um, and is progressive? So is it instantaneous and fully applied, or is it progressive, meaning it's partially applied at a moment and then more and more fully applied as time goes on. This was the question that was before the Council of Trent. It was, it was really as they had, um, as scholar, Bible scholars on both sides of this, they had, they had debated and, and I've, in some of the other sessions, we've talked about some of the debates and some of the things that came out of them. By the time the, the church, the Catholic church is answering that question um, in the mid 1500s, it really comes down to this, this very subject. Is justification something that is instantaneous or is it uh, applied and then progressed in your life? Well, for someone to be declared right with God, for, someone, for you to be right with God, what you don't want is you don't want to be found in some middle position, right? You certainly don't want to be found not right with God at all, right? That's, that's not a place you want to be found. But you also don't want to be found in some kind of middle position, um, which was what Luther was fighting against. Luther and the reformers were fighting against um, being able to buy your own salvation or your own time out of purgatory where you would pay for the rest of, uh, of your justification or to be able to buy someone else's out. These were called indulgences. This is the kind of thing that Luther and the reformers were really working to correct early in the, in the Reformation and then, and then establish their own churches around, uh, around the principle of instantaneous justification that we are, by no merit of our own, made right with God in the moment that God calls us from darkness into light, that in the moment, whatever scriptural metaphor we want to use, uh, takes our heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh, use John 3, to be born again, right? that this is an instantaneous moment that, that happens in our lives. And what the Catholic Church does in the, in the Council of Trent is they reject that idea, and they have continued to reject that idea over the last 500 years, even though um, and if you were to read the book on faith, the, the, the third book in the series that's out there, he goes into, that author goes into some of the progressions, and I think it's kind of an interesting read and one I don't have time to, to talk about tonight, how Protestants and Catholics have tried to come together on this subject, but have never really been able to, to come together on it because it really boils down to that question. Is justification something that has, in the past tense, happened to you, a believer, or is it something that is happening to you? 
Now, we think of sanctification as being something that is happening to you, but sanctification doesn't address our position with God. It, do, it doesn't address whether we are right with God or not. Um, the, the Catholic position that came out of the, the Council of Trent intertwined those things to the point to where they were inseparable. Where we left off last week was recognizing that, yes, works matter. Remember, we ended last week in John 2, or not John 2, James chapter 2. We ended last week with the point with, yes, works matter. But works matter because they are an outpouring or an outflowing of faith. That because we have faith, we then are obedient. And our obedience to God shows itself in our works. The position out of the, the Catholic position out of the Reformation said, no, that's, that's not correct. It is, uh, it, it is sanctification and justification or faith and works are so intricately tied that both of them progress in your life. And so what I hope we saw over the last two weeks was to believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone is to believe that when God saves you, he saves you. Does that make sense? That, that you're, not, you're not, from a, from a righteousness standpoint, from a justification standpoint, from you being right with God, you're, there's, that, that's not still something that's in the works. Your, your sanctification is certainly still in the works, but that doesn't affect your position with God. That if you died today, you're just as justified as if you had died two weeks ago or just as justified if you had died two years from now or 20 years from now, um, whatever it may be. That if you are saved from a positional standpoint, you are saved. That's what we spent the last two weeks trying to, trying to address. So to take that into the why this still matters, the first thing that I think is helpful for us to consider is what do people often do to get this wrong? And, and I'm moving past, even though we'll mention it a little here, I'm gonna move past just the, um, the debate in the Reformation of how whether Catholics were right or wrong or Protestants were right or wrong and just think culturally now, even within even sometimes within our own minds as we think about salvation, how do we often end up adding things to grace and faith, to salvation by grace through faith alone? What, what are the most common add-ons that, it, that leave us back into, that bring us back into a place to where we're looking at justification in some sort of progressive sense instead of an instantaneous sense. So let me give you three places that I think we see this most often. The first, and the, I'm going to use three kind of tag on words that I think help us here. The first is if we think about salvation or we think about justification as in the gospel being saved by grace through faith alone, then it's the gospel, that message of the gospel and then the word, you could write the word if beside it. The gospel if. Another way to look at this is that we think of the gospel in discriminate terms. That the gospel, this really, this if challenges salvation by grace. Because remember grace, the, the contrary fact to grace is merit. That somehow God looks at me or looks at you and sees something within you that causes him to save you, not of his loving kindness towards you, but because of something that you, because of something about you, right? And this ultimately leads us to a place of discrimination to where we share the gospel with people that we think deserve it. Now, you need to understand something. This has historically been a problem, not only in the Catholic church, this has been a problem in the Protestant church. This has been a problem in the Western church significantly. Do you know that you are, for, if you are likely to share the gospel, which statistically says, and, and I believe this is a church that people have gospel conversations. I'm, I'm glad for that. I think we need to continually work to do a better job with that. But you know, the statistics tell us that less than 2% of evangelical Christians will actually practice evangel, e evangelism this year. That only about two out of every hundred Christians will actually share their faith with anybody this year. And of those people, the ones that they share their faith with are very likely going to be people that are very much like them. Because we tend to think that people like us 
deserve to hear the gospel more than people unlike us. Now, this shows up in systemic ways and has showed up historically in systemic ways in the United States in things like racism and classism where, where we considered the gospel to be something that was reserved for, historically, it was reserved in some ways for white people or it was reserved for middle class or upper class people, whatever people are thinking in their whatever own temptations people have to choose to discriminate with the gospel. So the, I'll share the gospel with you if, and now that maybe we're post some of that, although I do think some of that still lingers, we still very much run the risk of saying, I'll share the gospel if it looks like your life is cleaned up. The church, I think, is pretty bad about this, that, we'll, that we want someone to get things right in their life and then they can come to saving faith in Jesus instead of coming to saving faith in Jesus and allowing them the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit to uh, change people's lives. But we recognize, don't we, that the, the gospel doesn't discriminate. We're not, in, we're not certainly supposed to be discriminate with the gospel. We're supposed to be indiscriminate, that we proclaim the gospel to all people. This is what we've been told in Matthew 24. We're told in the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a, test, as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come that Jesus didn't say it's going to be proclaimed to some nations, to some people. It's going to be proclaimed to all of them indiscriminately. We're supposed to proclaim the gospel to people like us, to people not like us, to people who may share some of our moral convictions and even though they've not believed the gospel because of common grace, they, they share some of our moral convictions or they reject all of our moral convictions. You, do you know that the, the gospel is for, and I didn't watch it. I didn't watch the State of the Union in a very, very long time, okay? But the gospel, maybe you did watch it. The gospel is for people on both sides of that aisle. You know that, right? <laughs> that... Not just the ones that clapped when we wanted them to clap, but for the ones that clapped when we didn't want them to, to clap. That, and it's probably a good, because I think we've become more tribal around politics in our culture than probably anything else. Um, somebody doesn't need to get their politics right before we share the gospel with them, if there's such a thing as getting your politics right. That we don't, we don't get to say, well, it's the gospel if someone deserves it in my mind. It's just salvation by grace through faith that we proclaim indiscriminately. The second one is the gospel and. I certainly think this is what uh, Luther and the reformers were fighting with, um, uh, with the, during the Protestant Reformation. We fight this. I think this is a constant temptation, just as the gospel if, because of our own discriminatory patterns uh, is, is something we fight kind of in every generation. It just looks different in every generation. The gospel and, which we would call legalism, uh, rears its head in different ways. Uh, in, the, in the time of the Reformation, it was the gospel and the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, that you had to do the things the Roman Catholic Church said you had to do to be able to progressively earn your salvation. But this has shown up throughout the course of um, uh, Protestant history and, and, and uh, throughout the course of evangelical Protestantism, which we're kind of a part of, uh, this has shown up in every generation in different ways where ultimately what, while we'll say things like, oh yeah, all you, you just, it's believe, you need to believe in Jesus, that he'll save you by his grace through faith alone. We then start tagging things onto it about, other things that people need to do. And so we just look across the landscape of the way people proclaim the gospel and we tag biblical things onto it that still aren't right to tag onto salvation. Like, well, you're, you're, you're only kind of saved if you've professed faith in Jesus. You're really saved once you get baptized. Now we don't say that here, but there are places there are places that do. You're, you're kind of saved, you put your faith in Jesus, but you're really saved once you, you know, start dressing like we dress or doing these things that, that, that we do. Um, and ultimately, these are just all expressions of us adding things to the gospel where, where we, we want to make the law, and this is always going to be a temptation for us, to make the law the gospel. So Paul looks back on the law in Philippians chapter 3, 
and just thinks, considers simply how worthless it all was. All of these things that he had done up until the point that he believed the gospel. Listen to Philippians 3. He says, for we are circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection uh, from the dead. Notice what Paul says that saved him. It was faith alone that saved him, that none of these exterior works And that word that Paul uses for rubbish there is the closest the New Testament comes to to what we would consider a swear word. It's a relatively ugly Greek word, okay, Um, that that Paul uses there. You just let your minds go for a second and know that Paul says uh, all of those works are meaningless. Like it's, it's garbage compared to faith. But yet we are still in our flesh drawn to add things and say, yeah, it's, it's grace by faith, but you probably ought to also do all of these things too. And, and it's, it's important for us to, to always evaluate, which is what I think Paul is doing here, to always evaluate not only our own lives, but that which we show is important to others and say, am I putting conditions on someone's salvation? Am I, am I putting some type of extra requirement onto someone? The third or is one that maybe you're not expecting because the first two, right, speak kind of to our own, uh, like these own, our own requirements that we want to put on people. But we're seeing this more and more in, in um, Western Christianity, and that is the gospel or. And this we could label universalism. It, it's important for us to, to not miss a word in these when we're talking about the solas, right? The sola, the sola means, that word means alone. By grace, through faith, alone. That, that there's not another option. That, that it can't be the gospel or. That someone can't accomplish it according to works. That those things that, that, that uh, Paul lists there in Philippians 3 weren't able to do that which faith in Jesus was able to do that there's not some other option. So when Jesus in John 14 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, he, he meant it. We read in Acts 4, and there is salvation in no one else, uh, for there is no, no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. It, like the, the scripture means it when we are told that this is the only way. That salvation by grace through faith is the, is the only way that any of us can be saved. So uh, the reason I want us to spend a little time on this tonight um, is because we are all, you and I both, I'm not just, I'm not just talking to you, I'm, I'm bearing my own inadequacies here. We, we all run the risk of falling into one or more of these, of these traps to where we'll say with our mouths, oh sure, it's by grace through faith. Mm, but maybe you also, maybe it's only for certain people or maybe it's for people that do certain things or maybe it's one way that people can get there, but, but sure, surely there, there's others. Um, you, may not, you may not be tempted towards every one of those, but if you're honest with yourself, I think you would probably recognize you're tempted towards at least one of them. Um, and, and so it, it's, it still matters that we em, embrace uh, the true gospel that we're saved by grace through faith alone because our sinful flesh, which is still being sanctified in us, that is still working out uh, into Christ-likeness is drawn towards uh, one of these things. My, mine's drawn towards legal. I, if you grew up like me in the, you know, in the church and you've kind of always had uh, a understanding of right and wrong, um, we, my flesh is drawn towards putting requirements on, on people. And, and I, have, I have battled for, 
I don't know, the 30 years that I've been a follower of Jesus, putting that off as, as I, because I'll seek to project that onto someone. And maybe, maybe you share that with me. Maybe yours uh, is, is different, but it's, it's important for us, an important question for us to ask. Another, as we're thinking about why this still matters, uh, question for us to ask is, and this is going to kind of get into some doctrinal issues that I didn't get to cover over the last couple of weeks. Um, but I, I think it's an important question is, is the Lord really the author and perfecter of our faith? And I would say it a different way. Is the Lord really the beginning um, and, and the foundation of our salvation? Or do we trace some kind, some kind of merit or some type of work to it in the way that we have ordered our understanding of the doctrine? So uh, I want to talk about some doctrinal things here, but recognizing this is still in that realm of why this matters. Uh, because the, these five solas end up serving as a good test for us. That as we develop systematic theology and Bible, uh, biblical theology systems, and whether you even understand what those words mean, I promise you this, you do develop these systems in your own mind. As you read your Bible, as you hear me preach, as you listen to our small group leaders teach, as you talk about the Bibles in your own home, you're developing a system. You have a systematic theology, whether you know it or not. <laughs> You, you have uh, categories for uh, biblical theology, whether you understand that that's what it is or not. These are kind of seminary ideas and, and terms that maybe we don't all, all, all that often use, but you, you have them in your brains. You know that these things are there, whether you re recognize that you're doing them or not. And the solas serve as a really good testing point for us to go back and to say, okay, if, if this is the system that I've put in place for how I understand someone has come to salvation, I then need to run it through this lens of, is it by grace alone? Is it by faith alone? Because those are the two that we're talking about tonight. Next week we'll ask, is it, is it through Jesus uh, alone? And so, because if we're going to ask that question, I think it's an important question to ask. As I look at my system, my doctrine, and the way that I understand um, the, the doctrine of salvation to work, is, is the Lord really the author and perfecter of that salvation? Because scripture certainly tells us he is. After, after giving us this beautiful picture in Hebrews chapter 11 of um, the salvation by faith in the Old Testament, and then connecting it to salvation by faith in the New Testament. Remember, we talked about this last week. Everybody's saved by faith. Old and New Testament saints saved by faith. In the very beginning of the very next chapter, which there weren't chapters in the original Bible, it's just the very next thought he jumps into, uh, the author of Hebrews writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him enduring the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have to recognize, I think, Scripture demands that we see uh, the Lord as the, the ESV here says, the founder and perfecter of our faith. When I first memorized that, I memorized it as author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, founder and author here carry the same connotation that, that salvation begins with the Lord. That's what author or founder, right? It begins there. But that's not where his work ends. He's also the perfecter. And for something to be perfect, you've got to trace it to the end. So salvation is what the author of Hebrews here saying in Hebrews 12 is salvation is wholly and completely a work of God. So it is by grace through faith and grace and faith, as we explored over the last couple of weeks, is a work of God. But for salvation to be by grace through faith, God must be both the start and the worker. He must be both the, the beginning and the one, the one who initiates it and the one who perfects it. Because if not, then merit or works ends up working their way into it. So let's talk about a word that sometimes makes people uncomfortable, but it, it's, it's a word that we've, we... Uh, we're, number one, not afraid to talk about here. I preach it every time we get to this uh, in the text. 
but a word that's commonly used both in the Old and the New Testament to talk about God's saving work in the lives of either a group of people or individual people, depends on the text, is the term election. And election is a necessary part of our understanding of salvation if we're going to rightly understand grace, uh, that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And here's why I say it's a necessary part. Number one, it's a part that the Bible talks about rather extensively, both in the election of Israel in the Old Testament and the election of people who make up the church in the New Testament. But it's also the recognition that God is the author and perfecter of our faith. I can remember having this conversation with somebody, this was years and years ago, this was not in this church, but having a conversation with somebody um, about election and they questioned I don't even remember what they were questioning me on that for. And I, was, I said, so what do you do with the passages in scripture that talk about election, that use that term? Well, what, like, what do you do with those passages? And um, they, they said, I'm not made, this, is, this is true. They, they said, well, I don't do anything with them. And so what do you mean you don't do anything with them? And they said, well, I don't really know what that means. So I just, I was like, well, you just pretend it's not there? Like, you know, we don't just get to pretend things aren't there, right? Like, there's a reason it's, it's there. We, we need to understand it. And here's, here's and I, I'm hoping that I'm, I'm going to be able to make this connection for you. Um, our understanding, and I, we don't have a dogmatic understanding of election in this church, right? There's, there's nothing in our doctrinal statements in our church that is, that is dogmatic, that you have to understand election in the same exact way that I understand it. But you got to understand it as something. Because to, to fail to see that God is doing something, that God did something before the foundation of the world to bring about the salvation of his people um, is, to, is to walk out on some very thin ice that ends up cracking below you uh, that leads you away from salvation being by grace through faith alone. So let's just talk about it for a minute. It, it, what does it mean that God, because the word election means that God foreknew us. So let's talk about Romans 8, 29. For, the, for those who he foreknew, this is describing the process of election here. For those he, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. So what Paul is affirming in Romans chapter 8 is that God knew something for those whom he foreknew. And then God did something. He predestined. Now we call this the doctrine of election, right? This, this is what it is, that God knew something and then therefore God did something. And the question becomes, what did God know and then what did God do, right? And people are gonna land in different camps on this, but we, in both of those cases, we have to ask that question and you need to settle in your heart. I believe God knew this and therefore I believe God did this. And what I want to tell you is what, what I believe, what I, I think Scripture teaches, and we could have a lively discussion about it afterwards if you'd like to. I believe that God knew people, not facts. No, I do believe that God knew facts. I believe that God knows everything. I believe that before the foundation of the world, God knew everything. God knew everything that would happen. Um, there's an interesting line of Christian thinking now called Molinism um, and... Uh, I think Molinism has its problems, but one of the things that's interesting that has come out of that is that uh, the belief that God doesn't just know everything that has happened and will happen, but God knows every possible outcome that could happen or would happen. So it, you know, if, if every action has a reaction and, and every choice could be yes or no, that God knows the outcome of every possible outcome that could ever be in every encounter. Like, that's, that's hard for me to even get my mind around, you know? But he's God, certainly that's true, right? I mean, it got, God could know every outcome of every action, not only in my life, but in every, in every uh, you know, the outcome of every action in every person's life, um, no matter what that person were to do in, in any particular moment. But I don't think it's those facts that Paul is talking about. Because when he says in verse 29, there in Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew... It's not that, that God knew things about people, but that God actually knew people. I mean, there's a good example of this in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he's talking about Jesus. He's not talking about the church. He's talking about Jesus. 
And he says, uh, Peter says, he was, he was, he being Jesus, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believed in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So when Peter thinks about the foreknowledge of God, not in light of the church, but in in light of uh, the son, he says he was known, that he was a person that was known. Certainly the father knew facts about the son. He knew what the ministry of the son would be. He knew about, he knew and foreordained all of those things. But who is it that he knew? He knew the son. And what does our doctrine of the Trinity teaches? Our doctrine of the Trinity teaches that the father, son, and the Holy Spirit have existed in perfect relationship beyond the scope of time that we can't say, you know, time hasn't existed eternally. God established time when he established the universe, but God, God existed before that because God exists outside of time and the relationship of God, the father, God, the son, and the Holy spirit have always existed perfectly together. And this is what Peter is driving at that the father knew the son in this intimate kind of way. He knew him as a person. And I think that's the same thing that Peter is saying that God knew. Who is it that God knew before the foundation of the world? God knew his children. It's not something about them that he knew. Remember, this isn't based on merit. It is by grace alone, not by merit. God didn't know something about you. God didn't know that you would be a good person. God didn't know that you would have a proclivity to choose to come to church. God didn't know that you would be born in America if you were born in America. God didn't know any of these things. God knew these things about you, but that's not what God, that's not what Paul is describing that God knew. God knew you. And so that's what God knew, right? But then what did God do? God chose then to save you. In Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, we read, blessed be the, our, uh, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God knew not that you would believe, not that you would want to come to church, not that you would be born. He knew all of that stuff, but that's not the foreknowledge that's being described. The foreknowledge that's being described is that he knew you, loved you. And what did he do then? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So you take both of those foreknowledges, right? He knew you and he knew Jesus. And because of this, he chooses to save some. He chooses to save people. So this begs a question that somebody, if I don't answer it now, somebody's going to ask me later. Are we, are we sure? Are we really sure that it's, that, that it's not God looked into the future and knew that I would believe If that's the case, the Bible never speaks about faith and God's foreknowledge in that way. If that's the case, then what ends up happening is faith becomes a merit. And faith isn't a merit, right? Faith is a gift of God so that no man can boast. Listen to Romans 11, 5 through 6. Paul writes, "So, so too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Not chosen because God looked in the future and saw something great about you or saw something great about me, but chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, I recognize that there's probably some of you here that this is challenging to you. Others of you have heard me teach on this subject before. And, um, but part of the reason I wanted to do this series is is, is I wanted us to to kind of strip away some things and, and really challenge us in the way that we think about salvation, when we say that it is by grace, it has to be grace alone. When we say it's by faith, it has to be by faith alone, not, our, not based in our virtue, not based in something that God looked ahead and saw in us, even seeing our faith, but simply seeing us and, and in his own goodness, loving us. Not seeing our virtue, but seeing Christ's virtue. 2 Timothy 1, 9, we read, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, not, nor me of his prisoners, but share in suffering for the, gospel, uh, for the gospel by the power of God, who saves us and calls us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the age, ages began. It is because of his purpose and, and his what? His purpose? So God's doing what God's going to do? That's what we confess to be true about God, that God is the one that is in control, but it is also because of his grace. Ultimately, it leads us to, 
election being based on something good in us, even our faith, is the beginning of salvation by merit. And I hope what we've seen is that salvation isn't according to merit. It's not according to works. It is according only to the goodness of God towards us. This ultimately leads us to the conclusion that election is not conditioned upon anything that God sees in us that makes us worthy of his choosing us. This is a truly humbling doctrine. I I believe, to me it is. Every time I, I dwell on this, it's a humbling doctrine for me. Because we like, we are conditioned, and I think our sin nature wants to, to see something good in us. I told you, I say this often, like this is one of the, the greatest obstacles to evangelism in our world today is that people generally do not see themselves as bad anymore, right? They think other people are bad, right? It's really easy for all of us to watch the news right now and be like, that Vladimir Putin, that dude's bad, right? That's easy. But my neighbor... My neighbor's not really a bad guy. He takes my trash out when I go on vacation. You know, he's a good dude. That's, that's generally the way that we think about people and it's generally the way that people think about themselves. And so because that's kind of the, our pull, right? We end up wanting to say that God saw something in me that, that truthfully wasn't there. What God saw was he just, he saw Jesus um, and he, for his purposes and according to his will, loved me. That's what Ephesians 1, 5 says that, uh, in love, he predestined us for adoption to, to him himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That takes me out of the, that takes my, any of my work or any of my merit out of the equation altogether. So let me end here. I've got 15 minutes left. How, how we share the gospel and trust in the salvation of souls is dependent upon our understanding of salvation by grace through faith alone. What I ultimately hope is as we kind of use these five solas as a lens into our own doctrine, and maybe we rearrange some doctrine or we think about things in in a way that's that's more influenced by scripture. Uh, Ultimately, right, we say, I say this all the time here, belief drives value, value drives action which is why we have core beliefs as a church and then we have core values that correspond to those core beliefs. And ultimately those core values dictate what we do as a congregation as we reach up in and out together. So as we kind of reorder or rethink or reclarify or even reaffirm these beliefs about salvation being by grace and faith alone, hopefully what it does is it drives our action to share the gospel with people. Because this is what we're, this is the subject, right? The subject is that people cannot save themselves, that there is nothing good in them. There is no merit or work that they can, there's no merit within them or work outside of them that they can do to be saved. And so our right thinking about the gospel then helps inform how we share it with others. So let me connect what I just talked about to what I'm going to talk about. If your doctrine of election leads you to think you don't need to share the gospel with people, you need to strongly rethink your doctrine of election. So often people want to think that the doctrine of election means that people, we don't need to share the gospel because God's just going to save who God's going to save. God's going to send to hell who God wants to send to hell. Look, that's not a biblical understanding of what we're talking about. The biblical understanding has both God as the author and perfecter of our faith, but the responsibility for gospel proclamation from God's church and the responsibility for people to believe and be saved exists and you may say, well, I don't understand how those two things can, can coexist, how God can be fully and completely in control of the salvation of man before the foundation of the world, and yet the church is still responsible for proclaiming the gospel, and people are still responsible for believing the gospel. You say, I don't understand how those things work. Well, that's okay. You don't have to. They work because God says they work. And so we, we can't lean on, well, you know, God's going to save who's going to save, so I can just, right? There, there are far too many passages of Scripture that tell us you know, nobody lights a candle and puts it under a bushel, 
right? We're supposed to be the, the light of the world. We're supposed to proclaim the gospel to the nations. But having a, having a right understanding of grace and faith then informs how we do that. And so let me tell you three, I'm gonna, I phrase these in my notes in the negative because I think they're corrective for us, right? The first is this. When I have a right understanding of salvation by grace through faith, it reminds me that I don't convince anyone to believe anything. It's not my responsibility to convince anyone to believe anything, but I do share with them the truths that they must believe to be saved. I share with them truths like God is holy and man is sinful and Jesus provides a way through his life, death, burial, and resurrection for us to be reconciled to a holy God. And that belief in that alone is what saves people. But I don't argue anyone into the kingdom of God. I'm not out here trying to convince people that, that the gospel is true. My responsibility is to share with them that the gospel is true. The only one who can, can convince them that the gospel is true is who? God, because he's the author and perfecter of faith. He's the one, right, that is doing the work of salvation in someone's life. He's the only one that convinced a dead person to believe something because they're dead. I can't do that, but I can share with them the gospel. I can share with them what they need to believe. That's the first one. The second one was, is when, when I have a right understanding of salvation by grace through faith, it reminds me that I don't cause anyone to believe, but I do share with them how to believe. When I say I don't cause anyone to believe, it means this. I have never saved anyone. Now, by God's goodness towards me, both before I was in ministry and in my couple of decades of uh, Christian ministry, I have seen, I would imagine, hundreds of people come to faith in Jesus. Every time it's remarkable. I mean, every time. We, we, should, we, we should stand in awe any time we see a heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. But having a right understanding of salvation by grace through faith reminds me that I didn't cause that to happen. I didn't reach into somebody's heart and change it. I don't have the ability to call the dead out of the grave into life. But, but I can show them from a human perspective how it is that one can go. Remember, I think I said this last week, so often the scriptures... Depends on, it depends on the perspective of how it's written. Sometimes the scripture is written from the perspective of God. Sometimes the scripture is written from the perspective of man. And it's describing the same event from two different perspectives. Right? We know that, that it is God alone who does this work. But we're required not to cause anyone to be saved, but to show them how. To point them towards a Jesus who saves them by grace through faith alone. Number three, if I have a right understanding, a right perspective of salvation by grace through faith, I don't make it possible for anyone to believe, but I do trust the Lord in how he chooses to work as the author of salvation. We, we have a responsibility as a church. We have responsibility as believers, but I believe that, that responsibility rests also on the collective that we share the gospel in every opportunity that God gives us, that we look for opportunities as a community of faith to proclaim the good news of Jesus um, to those who need to hear it, recognizing that that is our responsibility. But outside of the work of God, outside of what Jesus describes in John 3 to Nicodemus as the wind blowing where it may, it's impossible for man to be saved. It's impossible for me to create the environment for men or women or boys and girls to be, to be saved. I, I don't open that possibility up simply by doing things on my own. God is the one who does that. God is the one who moves his spirit into the lives of people. And we don't have to fully understand from every angle, why, how that happens. And I think this is, which is why I wanted to end here. I think this is what 
causes people some trepidation in sharing their faith. I think the, the primary reason people don't share their faith truly is apathy. I, I think we, we've, we've grown apathetic towards the gospel. I think the second is fear. We're afraid that somebody's going to either reject us or they're going to ask a question that we don't know the answer to. But I think another reason is that people, we, we struggle with understanding how it all works. Because if it, was, if it was by merit or by works, we could understand it. It would be a whole lot easier from our perspective to understand it if we were like, oh, here's what you need to do, right? You need to do, you need to come to church, you need to be baptized, you need to take, take the Lord's Supper. And once you've done that, you know, you read your Bible 10 minutes a day, and off to the races you go, right? That is easy. If that's what it was, be a little bit easier for us. But that's not what it is, right? We're describing something wholly supernatural to people. We're telling people to to believe something and as they believe it, God then does a work that no man can do on his own. And I think not understanding how all of that kind of comes together causes us some trepidation and maybe even leads us to not be as forthcoming with how we share the gospel with people as we should be. But when we rightly understand that, that what we're doing is sharing the gospel is not making it possible, we're just trusting the Lord. We're just being obedient. I've never saved anyone. I've never caused anyone to be saved. I've never convinced everyone to be saved. All I've done has been obedient to what the scriptures command me to do. And that is to proclaim the truth that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And that the way that he saves people is by his grace through faith, which is a gift of God so that no man can boast. So as we think about these two doctrines, and I'm just wrap this up, I'm going to pray and we're going to be done. As we think about these two doctrines, let them clarify what, how you have thought about salvation. Let them clarify if you are tempted towards say, well, it's the gospel if or the gospel and or the gospel with whatever you mean. Those three aren't the only things that people add to them. I just think they're the most, some of the most common in our culture. But also, how, does this, how do they drive you then to share the, share the good news of Jesus with people, recognizing that you're simply doing that out of obedience towards God. And when God saves people, he does so in the same way that he saved you, out of his own goodness towards those he loves and offers forgiveness to. And we, we, we will see one day how all of these strings connect. I don't feel like you have to connect them all today to then be obedient. Just be obedient to God now. To live the gospel before people and to proclaim it to people. And trust that God will do what, what he alone can do. It takes a big weight off your shoulders to know that, you don't have, that you're not saving people, right? That you're just being obedient to God to tell people what God has told you to tell them. That should be a huge weight off your shoulders. Maybe that relieves somebody today. It's like, oh, okay, that's good. Now I know that I don't have to you know, orchestrate something. I'm just doing what God has told me to do and trusting that he will do what he says is his part, right? So this is why salvation by grace through faith still matters and why it matters for us to have that right in our church as we seek to be a gospel influence in our community and around the world. Let me pray for us. We'll be done. Thank you, God, um, that uh, you didn't base salvation off of my own goodness because I would have failed. You didn't base salvation off of our ability to please you because we would have all failed. And thank you, God, that you looked at Jesus and your church who you love and you chose to sacrifice your son for the forgiveness of our sins and you apply that to our lives by your power alone. Help us, God, to be faithful with that message as we go. Show, give us opportunities, we pray. Guide us by your Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news of Jesus so that others too may know and believe and be saved by the power of God. Thank you, God, that you work these things together. Thank you, God, that you were working that together without us even knowing it as we sent people from our church to another land. And through that, People who you foreknew before the foundation of the world believed and were saved.
by the power of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. God, we are in awe of how you work. Would you continue to use us in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me quickly just tell you for next week, I'm going to do, so I've got three weeks left. Um, I'm going to do the doctrine of Jesus. Um, uh, uh, so by grace through faith in Jesus alone. So we're going to be talking about the sacrifice of Jesus next week. Um, we're going to talk about what, what righteous sacrifice means. We're going to both look at the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and how those things come together um, to provide for salvation, that there's nothing else that can provide for that justification, that the wrath of God went somewhere, and it went on Jesus, and the righteousness that is imparted to us had to come from somewhere, and it comes from Jesus. So we're, we're going to look at how, where, where the, life and death and bear, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus plays the role in salvation uh, next week. All right. So I hope you're back. Thank you to those that, that joined us online. Great to see you. God bless you.